John 1, 14 through 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Now this is the last time in the gospel according to John that John calls Jesus the word. If you search the rest of the book, you're not going to find the word referring to Christ again. Now he is the word, he remains the word. But why does he stop referring to him that way? Well, John, the author, he's very, very careful with his language and he wants us to understand that the word isn't merely a concept. It's not an idea to be grasped. He's a person. To be. He's a person to whom we can entrust ourselves. He, he's someone we both can approach and believe on rationally, right? With our minds and relationally. Not just an idea, but a person. The word became And at the enfleshing of the word, the whole book of John takes off. So from here on out, we're gonna, the pace of the sermons will change because this is the prologue that we're finishing. And it's gonna get into more of the story of Jesus's earthly, his enfleshed ministry. But that's important that we understand that he's not just a concept to believe in, he's a person to be trusted and that it's rational and relational because it's the whole point of the book. It's why John wrote. It's so that we might hear John's testimony and believe through the witness and trust ourselves to his care. And by doing so, receive his eternal life. And that's that's our aim today. That's our aim for every sermon we do, especially in the John series, is to hear the testimony and trust ourselves to Jesus, to believe on Jesus and receive life. Three main headings for this uh, message this morning to go through our text. Um, Jesus and the tabernacle, Jesus and the glory, and Jesus and the law. Unapologetically Jesus-focused. Let me just ask for, again for the Lord's help. Father, you are the speaker and your son is the spoken word that you spoke uh, by which everything was made and through whom uh, we are remade and recreated. And so I just ask that you would send your spirit down and speak Christ in our hearts through your word with clarity and power, and help us to believe. Amen. Amen. All right, well, point number one, Jesus and the tabernacle. From Sinai to tabernacle is our first sub-point. I got a lot of sub-points today because my mind is... 
um, from Sinai to Tabernacle. So way back in the book of Exodus, Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai. And who did he, who did he meet in Sinai? Met God. It was a remarkable moment. It was the first time anything like that had happened in the Bible. And it was a dramatic moment. It's actually a dramatic 40 days. Um, there was earthquakes and all sorts of things. But the point was that God's presence was there, thick. And God's glory enshrouded the mountain and shone brilliantly in lightning clouds. And it was there on that mountain that Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, or as the, it says literally in the Hebrew Bible, the Ten Words. Uh, and he received these Ten Words written on tablets of stone. And it was from there, in the thick presence of God enrobed and shrouded in the glory cloud, that Moses also, crucially, interceded for his people. Because what happened while Moses was up on Sinai? The people built a golden calf and started dancing and frolicking around and worshiping it. So while Moses is meeting, people are just desecrating their faith. And so he intercedes and says, these people have sinned. Would you be true to your character and forgive them? He asks God to forgive their sins. And then he comes down and he sprinkles them with the blood of the covenant to symbolize the sacrifice that it comes through. In other words, the presence and glory of God, which are kind of the, the, the visual motif, the theme of Mount Sinai, are deeply connected to the revealing of God's character, which happens in the law, and with the forgiveness of sins. We need to hold those ideas. Because what happens next is God gave Moses a blueprint, which isn't what you expect a God to do on a mountaintop, but it's what God did. He wanted him to build a tent called the tabernacle. It had to be built to God's exact specifications as if it were according to a heaven, like a, like a, a you know, a, a shadow of a heavenly reality. And this tabernacle would be mobile with the people who were mobile. As they were looking for a place and looking for a home, God went with them. The, it's as if Sinai presence were packaged up and sent to go with the people. In fact, the tabernacle would become more like Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments would be put inside that tent. The presence of God would be thick in that tent and the glory of God would come over it like a cloud. And once a year, the priest would go into that tent on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he would ask God to forgive the sins of the people, just like Moses did. And the blood of the covenant would be sprinkled. So now the presence and glory of God, they're no longer just up there, here. It's not on the heights of Sinai, it's in the valleys of the wilderness. And in that tabernacle, the presence and glory of God would be with his people to reveal his character. What's God like? Go to the tabernacle and to forgive their sins. Point, right? That's kind of the backdrop for what John's talking about here. John 1.14 again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, it's not up there, but if you've got it in your Bibles, look at the little word dwelt. 
you've got a different translation that says something else. But the word that lies underneath it, because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, the word that lies underneath that is the word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. And we've so the tabernacle was built according to a heavenly blueprint and the, bl- the blueprint was the logos, the word, the sort of schematic of heaven, if you will, himself. And so just like the presence and glory came down from the mountain to the tabernacle, the word became, do you see the connection there? The presence and glory of God are no longer just up in heaven all of a sudden. In Jesus, God would, with all that fullness, he would be with his people and he would be with them through Christ to reveal his character. Sins. That's why we call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, Sinai went mobile. They took a to-go order of Sinai so that God might be with his people and that their sins could be forgiven. And if that's true, then we should now be, reading John 1, we should be the cross. If the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, then his aim is to accomplish more perfectly and fully what was accomplished there. That we would know what God is like and that our sins might be. He himself was the sacrifice. He himself was the tabernacle. His blood is the blood of a new covenant that's sprinkled. So we can finally be fully forgiven and fully free. Earlier, I said that God would be for the revealing of his character and the forgiveness of sins. Those two things are so important. And that leads us then to the second point that I would want to talk about, the second kind of key word that goes along with Jesus here. It's glory, Jesus and the glory. So look, look again at your text, um, verses 14. And now we're going to shift from thinking dwelt and tabernacled to glory because those ideas cohere so tightly. Starting in verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, one of the best habits you can get into when you're reading the Bible is to ask questions like our children ask questions. And if there's something, interrogate it, question it, examine it. We're not afraid of the Bible. We don't have to protect it from our questions. But this isn't one of those big fundamental questions about the goodness of God or anything like that. This is a simple question of who are the we's? The word we shows up a couple times and we need to know to understand John's talking about? Who's John talking about? Now there's a hint in verse 16 because John says we have all received from his fullness grace upon grace. Whereas the first he says we've seen his glory. So we've got a we and a we all. And the we all is there to help distinguish who we're talking about. I've just confused myself. In other words, the first we is the apostolic we. It's the eyewitnesses. It's Jesus's earthly friends that went fishing with him and ate with him and laughed with him and learned to pray at his feet. And the ones who saw the man Jesus on this planet, 
we have seen his glory. The glory only God has, we saw in this guy from Galilee. That's staggering. That's who the first we is. And now they bear testimony to us. Say, so we, saw, we saw the glory. We know that Yahweh has, the presence and glory of God is with us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he's so full of grace and truth. And in verse 16, then the second we refers to all of us. The we all. We who have believed their testimony. The eyewitnesses who said this Jesus that I spent three years day and night with is God himself. When we believe that, we get thrown into that we all. And we have all received from that Jesus, grace upon grace. You can't receive grace from a concept. He's a real person and he gives good gifts. So if you've, for, if you've trusted Jesus, if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, if you've trusted him to forgive your sins and give you his goodness and blessing, then you've got to. You have seen his glory as well. We talked about that last week. And someone may ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? And your response can be like the Samaritans in John chapter four that we'll get to later. Remember the woman at the well runs back with a message for the rest of Found him. I found the one full of grace and truth. I found the Messiah we've been looking for. And they came out to see, and then they believed. And they said, at first we just believed because of what she said. Then we met Jesus. And now we believe because we've encountered him. That's what our testimony becomes like too. We believe the eyewitnesses. We believe the Bible. It might not, it might be a belief of like, I, Lord, I think this is true, but I don't feel it to be true. But then you'll receive from him. Grace upon grace. And the implication is upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. He is the fount of all blessings. He is the fount of all grace and all goodness. And if you've encountered him, then now you can say, at first I believed because of what I read, but now I've met Jesus. You have a testimony. We're going to focus now on, on that first we, uh, on what the eyewitnesses saw. It says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So the first question again, we interrogate, what on earth is glory? So I've got um, a, a, a mediocre illustration that I think we'll be able to be helped by. It's not perfect, so bear with me. But the best illustration for what glory is that I know of is the solar system's sun, right? It's so dense, weighty. It has so much mass, probably breaking math. I don't understand school stuff, but so much density that it actually exerts a gravitational pull and brings everything into orbit around it. And it's so full of energy and power that it gives light and life to everything. We might call that density and that energy of the sun, the sun's character, what the sun is intrinsically like inside. And then when you you go down to your beach spot. Everyone has a spot in Florida they go to in Tennessee. You go down to your beach. 
and you step out of your villa and the sun, <laughs> villas in Florida, I don't know, the sun hits you and you just feel incredible. You're like, oh, I feel alive. That's the sun's glory. It has a character, which doesn't change whether or not you are experiencing its character. But when you do the power and energy of the sun and you enjoy it, that's, that's like glory. In other words, glory is the radiance of God's character enjoyed. The Hebrew word for glory that John is riffing off of in the Old Testament is, uh, is a fun word. It's one of those throaty words, chavod, chavod. Thanks, William. It, and it literally means weight, density. So you could, be, uh, you could use it literally like to say a chubby horse, right? It's just hard to move. It's big. It's eaten too much hay. Or it could be used figuratively like saying this great king has much Chavod. He's so important that he draws things into orbit around himself. It's like he's the center of a little solar system. He has great Chavod. And all those ideas are wrapped up into one big package when we're talking about the glory of God. But there's even more to it. Because when the Bible talks about God's glory in full display, it's always in terms of words like radiance, beauty, lightning, dazzling. There's something beautiful about the glory of God. God's character then is revealed in his laws. We talked about the Ten Commandments show us something of what God is like. And we learn that he's of supreme importance. He's waiting, right? Everything is in orbit around God. He is actually the center of it. He is perfectly good. He's the source of all life and light. He gives life like the sun gives life. And he's ultimately powerful. And when God's character is displayed, it's him. That's what we mean by glory. The radiance of God's character. All right. Exodus 33. You can turn there if you like. I think it'll be up on the screen. Verse 19 through 23. Exodus 33, 19 to 23. Moses makes a request of the Lord. He says, please show me your glory. And here's what God said in reply. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. You see that switch? Show me your glory. Okay. Glory is when you enjoy my goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall go, uh, where, where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's glory is his goodness seen. When he, who he is comes on full display. So at this point in 33, 
with God. See, he, he's not immune to seasons like you and I go through. He, he wasn't understanding God's ways and he was struggling to pray. So he said, show me your goodness. I want to see your glory. Help me. I need a glimpse of you. I gave him a glimpse. And this glimpse came in a package deal because first, the next thing that happens is God gives him another version of the Ten Commandments. You, you may remember Moses broke the first out of just sheer outrage at the people's idolatry. So when Moses says, show me your glory, he says, I will. I'm going to give you the law on stone tablets. Then second, God called Moses back up to Sinai. And he hid him in the cleft of a rock and God passed before him. He said, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And then he and he showed him his glory. That's in Exodus 34, the next chapter. We're going to look at that, verses 6 through 8. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. His goodness is severe, isn't it? To borrow a word from Ryan. But he's good. And the last phrase of verse six, it sums it all up. God's goodness two things. And these two things have become from Exodus 34 through the rest of the Old Testament, shorthand to refer to God's glory and holiness. Here's what the two things are. God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. That sums up the whole character of God. In his steadfast love and faithfulness, all sin can be forgiven. You see, he lists three to be emphatic and cover all the bases, right? Iniquity, transgression, and sin. There's nothing you can do wrong on purpose or on accident that can't be forgiven according to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. We should. But because he's perfectly just, he follows that statement about forgiveness by saying, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Now think back to John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. All right, so in Exodus 34, I said God's full of two things. What were those two things? Steadfast love and faithfulness, right? Things Jesus is full of. Grace and truth. If you were to sit down with the Hebrew text and uh, write a translation that was very precise and very literal into Koine Greek, which did, here's what you'd find. You would find that the Hebrew on the left, Exodus 34, for steadfast love, translates with precision into the Greek word charis, which we call grace. And you would find that Emet, the Hebrew word for faithfulness, translates precisely 
aletheia, truth. In other words, though our English translations hold them apart, in the text, they're deeply united. When Moses says, Jesus is full of grace and truth, the, his first readers who kn- knew their Hebrew Bible said, oh, he's Yahweh full of steadfast love and faithfulness in the flesh. And no one's seen his face, but now the word is flesh. And now we can gaze at his glory. Yeah. In Jesus, we don't just get a cleft of the rock glimpse of the back of God. We get a person. Just like God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then God passed before him. In Christ, I will make my goodness dwell among you. And the word became flesh. This person lived out God's character in a way the law never could. The law and does reveal good things about God, true things about what he's like. It also reveals deeply where we fall short of that law. But the law doesn't do anything out in the world. The person of Jesus Christ lived it. He loved people with the whole character of God behind that love. He did it so perfectly that we not only say he fulfilled the law, but but we can say that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. If you've ever heard the word exegetical or exegete, we're supposed to exegete the Bible. It means to unpack what's there, to explain it, to examine it and produce it for someone else to see. It's like showing your work in math. Jesus exegetes the Father father by his life because he is the word. Jesus shows us what the father is like. The glory of God then is made manifest in the person and work of Jesus. And if you want God's glory, if you want the goodness of God on full display, then you look to the pinnacle moment of Jesus's earthly life, the cross. Cyril of Jerusalem said something like, it's like three, said something like, at the cross, Jesus spread far his hands to embrace to the ends of the earth. For Golgotha was the very center of the world because God said, I work salvation from the midst of the earth. It's poetic and it's beautiful and it's true in that way. That pinnacle moment of Jesus's life becomes the actual pivot point of all of human reality. And God said on Mount Sinai, if you'll remember, I forgive all kinds of sins, but I will not clear the guilty. And from Exodus 34, Jesus on the cross, God followers have been like, I don't know what to do with that. How can he forgive sin without clearing the guilty? And then God gave the word enfleshed. Jesus died to forgive iniquity and transgression. 
Satan. And there's no sin, accidental or on purpose, that you could do that wouldn't come under the blood of Christ on the cross. But he did not clear the guilty. He became the guilty. That, that is the glory of God. That is his on display for us to enjoy. Is that the most glorious, perfect, holy one himself became killable so that he could become our sin and bear it on our behalf. So my sins have been forgiven. If you trust Jesus, yours have been forgiven, but the guilty has not been cleared. My debts are wiped clean because another went to debtor's prison in my place. And my record is clear because another took my guilty record on his shoulders. That's the glory. And Jesus explains that that's always been the character of God. Yeah. So if anyone ever, pardon me, if anyone ever accuses God of being petty and self-centered for caring about his glory because he says, I'm jealous for my glory, don't you believe it for a minute. You see, all of your good is wrapped up in his glory. And if God were to stop being jealous for his glory, he would stop loving us. And there'd be no hope, and there'd be no forgiveness, and there'd be no joy, and there'd be no... But praise God, he is jealous for his glory. And he loves you. Now, let's go to our third and last point, Jesus and the law. Uh, this point will be brief. Look with me at the last one, 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So through Moses came these 10 words, these 10 commandments that show us God's goodness and reveal our own sins and failings. And through keeping this law, no human has ever earned forgiveness. No human has ever perfectly shown what God is like by the 10 commandments. No human has ever, through the 10 commandments, obtained the blessing of eternal life. That's not what the law was for. It was to reveal God's character. So the law does have glory because it God. There is a glory to the law. But the glory of the law fades away, becomes dim when we're dazzled with the radiance of God's goodness in Jesus. Paul talks about this everywhere. Book of Galatians, all, a bunch of his letters deals with it. The law was great, but Jesus is better. He fulfills the law. He's the thing the law was always pointing to. He's the thing the tabernacle was pointing to. Jesus isn't beholden to the law. He's the Lord of the law. He's the one that can come on the scene to law-abiding Hebrews, Israelites. And you've heard it said, and quote the law, and then say, but I say to you, who can say that but the Lord of the law? And here's one of those examples that he says. He says, a new commandment. I give to you. This is John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love 
other. Just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. Now, is loving one another a new commandment? No. Leviticus uh, 19 tells us to love our neighbor. That's not new. So what's so new about Jesus' new commandment? Just have loved you. That's what's new, is that we have, in Christ, encountered the glory of God himself in such a way that the goodness went from the realm of abstraction into real human life and experience. Loved us to the end, John tells us. His love took him to the cross. His love held him on the cross as he paid for our sins. Scholar Richard Bauckham says, he incarnated the kind of divine love that the disciples are called to imitate. They not only commandment as they could in the synagogue, now they see it on the cross. That's where the eyewitnesses saw the glory of Yahweh, was as their Lord and friend hung on a Roman execution device, giving himself for us just as I have loved you. That's how we're to love. Have you received that love? Have you received the forgiveness of all the wrongs that you've done or will do? Jesus. Has he borne your guilt? Has he paid your debts? If so, then you have received from his fullness grace upon grace. Because we don't feel that all the time. That's why we sing songs like we sang earlier. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We have to grab our souls by the shirt collars sometimes and say, remember what you've received. Grace upon grace upon grace. Bless the Lord. The fullness of Jesus is undiminished by the weight and neediness of our sins. From his fullness, we have received. The fullness of Jesus is a bottomless reservoir of grace for needy people like me. And if today you have not enjoyed the glory and goodness of God, then perhaps it's time to believe the testimony you hear and entrust yourself to his care. You just put yourself in, your, in his hands. I'm to do this for myself. I trust you. And then you will receive from his fullness. Let me pray to that end as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we don't worship you and kneel before you and orient our lives around you and come into your orbit because you're just a good teacher. We believe that you are God Almighty and have manifested the glory of the Godhead in the saving of sinners. And we love you more for it. Would you continue to give us from your fullness through these, your good gifts of these ordinary things, of bread, juice, 
would you give us more grace? Grace upon grace. We have so much need of more grace. Thank you. Amen. Let's take a moment to prepare your hearts.